All right, take your Bibles and let's turn to the book of Matthew this morning. So thankful for David and uh, his service to you last Sunday morning, beginning that What About series and uh, touching on some things that we know are consistent questions that come up. And the issue of eternal rewards and the Bama seat and all that will take place uh, for the believer before Christ is such a critical matter. It's critical because it's important to your motivation. It's supposed to be a part of your thinking. And usually when we're confused about something in our Bibles, we tend to just ignore that particular issue. So I'm so thankful for David's work last week in serving you through the explanation of um, at least the front end of Rewards in Eternity. And if you haven't heard that, I encourage you to get the CD or to go on our website and pick that up. It's free to you there. And I know that you'll be blessed because of that. Now, throughout the summer, we're going to take breaks from Matthew and uh, deal with topics like that and come back to a number of different issues that keep coming up in questions with some of you. And uh, we want to touch those and teach on those and allow the scriptures to inform our thinking on those different issues. And so we've just left it open-ended. What about whatever? And uh, we'll come back to that in a few weeks. But for now, we're going to come back to the book of Matthew and uh, spend some time in Matthew chapter 11. Why don't we ask God's blessing on our time in his word and uh, focus our hearts and our attention on him. Gracious Father, we are encouraged with what is before us in these next few minutes. We are anticipating the fulfillment of your promises to use your word as you have intended. We are confident that you will answer the prayer of your son when he prayed that we would be sanctified by your truth. And we know that your word is truth. And so we are encouraged as we anticipate the changes of, of our own character, the change in our thinking, the change in our affections, the development of our understanding and worship of you this morning as we encounter you on the pages of your word. We're encouraged because we know that your spirit dwells with each of us who are yours and that he is here to guide us in the truth, to give us understanding that the natural man has no potential for. We anticipate his powerful work, his active work in our time before you this morning in your word. And yet we are aware with all of that anticipation and all of that encouragement that apart from your gracious work, apart from your purposes in and through us, we have no capacity to rightly understand and then to rightly apply to our lives what we will study this morning. And so we lay ourselves before you as an act of worship and adoration and invite you to teach us from your word this morning. I pray that the communication and, and the preaching would fade behind the message that is so clearly given to us in these few verses that we'll study. We pray for grace that will sustain us through this, this hour so that we would be attentive, so that we would get the maximum blessing from the time with you and so that you would receive the maximum amount of glory and honor because of our response to your word. I pray that this study time would not be for our own end. It would not be ultimately just for our growth and for our accumulation of knowledge but that through love and application, you would be magnified because of this time together in your word. We ask for this 
And we ask for it confidently because we believe that it's in keeping with your purpose for this time. We pray it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Matthew chapter 11 and beginning in verse number one, read along with me and we'll read this text and then set the table a little bit, get acclimated, and then we'll dive into our study time this morning. Verse number one connects us to chapter 10. And we find here Matthew's record. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. And the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning, and it will be our topic of study, primarily looking at verses 2 through 6. Now, verse 1 here in Matthew chapter 11 is one of many um, transition verses for us in Matthew's writing. Matthew wrote this record. We've gone over this again and again, not as a chronological history of the life and ministry of Jesus, but as a thematic account of his work. Matthew's goal is to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah. There can be no questions asked. Once we come to the conclusion of Matthew's writing, we are left without excuse before the record of Holy Scripture. And so Matthew here transitions for us. He helps us in verse one to transition from the theme of the kingdom mission to now looking at yet another theme that will develop in chapters 11 and 12. In chapters 11 and 12, we're going to find that there is a growing opposition to the ministry of Jesus himself. And this is no surprise to us, right? I mean, most of chapter 10 was promising that opposition would come to the missionaries who went forth for the king. So it is no surprise that in chapters 11 and 12, opposition is rising against Jesus. The surprise in these chapters, as we're going to find over the next several weeks, is where it comes from. Because the opposition is going to come from John the Baptist. It's going to come from his front runner, Even today, we'll see the questions that John raises. It's going to come from his own family members, his his mother and his brothers. It's going to come from the religious leaders of Jerusalem, the infamous Pharisees. It's going to come from the people who would say they're all about the kingdom and the people who had the most intimate awareness of who Jesus was and what he was accomplishing. That's what we marvel at in chapters 11 and 12. So Matthew transitions us in verse number one to help us get to where we will be in this opposition period, which will really carry us through the remainder of this letter, culminating in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. So in verse number one, he helps us connect what has already taken place with Jesus finishing his instruction of the disciples, that is the twelve who are sent out on that short-term mission. And he picks back up now with what is happening in the present. And he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. A couple of things are interesting in verse number one before we even get to 
the primary heart of our text this morning. It is obvious from verse number one that Matthew's goal is to present Jesus to you and to me. Say, well, why is that obvious from verse number one? Well, because he just ignores what happened on the trip. We we don't hear about their leaving. We don't hear about what happened when the disciples were on this short term mission. And we don't get any report back about what happened or what their report was about the success or the failure, about their courage in the in the face of opposition and persecution. We don't get any of that. Why? Because Matthew was only concerned with the principles that the king gave to his kingdom missionaries. And now he's right back to presenting for us the ministry of Jesus himself. Matthew is concerned that we understand that Jesus is the Messiah King. Therefore, we need to listen when he communicates what the mission of the kingdom is like. And as soon as we've heard him communicate, we need to come back and look at his life and how he relates to his own kingdom mission. Second thing that's very interesting about verse number one is the transition is that Jesus did not send out the 12 to alleviate work for himself. Right. Jesus was expanding the ministry of his kingdom. So Jesus sends out the 12 and then he carries on going and in, in, in our in our translation says their cities going preaching and teaching and ministering in their cities. I think their cities ultimately goes back to the uh, Galilean cities that he's ministering to. It's not the disciples cities. He didn't go to each of their cities, though he did overlap. Their cities relates to the people of Galilee where he was instructing the disciples. So he's instructing in this land. The multitudes are around. He's speaking to the 12. He sends out the 12. And he goes back to teaching and preaching, primarily in the synagogues of the Galilean cities. D.A. Carson says, Attention returns to Jesus' ministry, for he did not send out the apostles in order to relieve himself of work, but in order to expand the proclamation of the kingdom. And Jesus has continued to do that. Even in his absence, we have been mobilized to take the kingdom mission to the world around us. So now we find in chapter 12, chapter 11 and 12, the opposition to Jesus coming to the forefront. I think it's important for us to notice uh, a primary thought that comes from verses 2 through 6 this morning. And it's so simple that you may just hear it and it, and it just flies right past you. Here is the, the one thought that Matthew clearly communicates from verses 2 through 6. And I, I trust that we'll spend the remainder of our time exposing this big idea. What is the big idea of this paragraph? Jesus is the only Messiah. Jesus is the only Messiah. You say, well, that's just elementary. That's so basic. True. We aren't in the kingdom unless we've come to recognize that simple statement, that Jesus is the only Messiah. And yet our lives as his people and the life of John the Baptist as his prophet and forerunner depended upon that truth being reiterated. And Matthew records it for our benefit this morning. So this is going to break this down into two very simple headings for us as we study this this morning. First of all, we're going to see the prophet's problem. We'll see the prophet's problem, uh, the prophet being John the Baptist. 
as he's affectionately known. And then we'll see the Messiah's message. So just two simple categories to show, I believe, what Matthew has as the central theme of this paragraph, that Jesus is the only Messiah. There is no other Messiah. Let's pick up in verse number two and let's let's get a historical context of where we are. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. So here is the context in which we find Matthew's account of this simple theme. John is in prison. You remember the story? Herod had imprisoned John because John had come to Herod and said, Herod, you married your brother's wife. And that is, and, and his brother didn't die. He stole his brother's wife and married her. And John had the audacity to go to Herod and to say to Herod, this is sinful behavior. And Herod did not like hearing what John had to say. So he imprisoned him. He put him in prison. And yet we find out in Mark and in Luke and John's account that Herod really liked John the Baptist. He was afraid of him because he knew of his momentum with the people. But he also enjoyed listening to John the Baptist. And John would come, and Herod would invite him to come and preach to him as a spectacle. He was confused by what John had to say, but he found it fascinating. In fact, in chapter 14 of Matthew, if you just flip over a page or two, in chapter 14 we find the description of what happened between John the Baptist and Herod. Beginning in verse... Number one, at that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, the governor, heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is post-death, obviously, for John the Baptist. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Veiled language there for the inappropriate relationship that he had with his sister-in-law. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she would ask. And you can read into the white spaces here of what's happening with this daughter at the birthday celebration. It is not a pretty sight. This is wickedness at every level. He's pleased by her, so he says, I'll give you whatever you ask. And she said, because her mother had prompted her, verse number 8, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, his reputation, he commanded it to be given. And he sent had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Warning graphic. Okay, this is John's scenario. This was the end of John. Really, when he was put in prison, he was never released. Herod puts him there. John is in a nasty prison cell. He does not have a bunk bed. He does not have cable television. He is not laying there reading books with the covers torn off. He is in a hole with probably a little window for light in the ground. He has no common uh, cleanly appliances for him to use. This is the worst case scenario. This person who had been born for the sole purpose of being the front runner of Jesus Christ, who came from the wilderness and proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, who baptized Jesus. He's in prison now and he's hearing 
Verse 2 says, the deeds of the Christ, and he's got questions. It's fascinating because the prophet's problem is directly connected to his situation, and I think we'll see that as we go along. Here we find John in prison, and he's concerned about what he's hearing about Jesus. Now, how can that be? From his prison cell, John is confused, and he sends this question. Notice the question that we find in verse number 3. And he sent his disciples and he said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, I don't know about you, but that question from this person to the one who was asked this question is mind boggling. This is the person who stood in the Jordan River, who had Jesus walk into the river and say, baptize me. And he said, I should not be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. This is the one who, after he baptized Jesus, he heard the voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And here is John in prison. And whatever it is that he's hearing, it's causing him to doubt at such a level that he sends his disciples, his followers to Jesus. And they ask Jesus, should we be looking for another Messiah? Are you really what you're cracked up to be. What a fascinating and baffling question. And yet it's a question that I don't think is too far from our own minds. What was it that John was hearing in prison that would cause him to doubt at such a level that he was willing to send a delegation to ask Jesus if in fact he really was the promised one or if they should really be anticipating someone else? That's the question that really plagues us in this text because Matthew doesn't give us any information. He just says that John was hearing the deeds of the Christ. Now, come back in your your Bible memory, come back to chapters 8 and 9 and think about the deeds that we've already heard about from the Christ. What are the deeds that we've heard from chapters 8 and 9? Well, we have heard that he has been healing every disease. We have heard that he's casting out demons we have heard in in chapters 5 through 7 that he's sitting on the side of a mountain and he's teaching thousands of people with profound truths about the kingdom but i don't think it was so much the content of what john heard in prison as it was what he didn't hear in the content that he heard what did he not hear about jesus that was particularly important to John and would cause him to doubt the validity of the messianic claim of Jesus. What was John hearing that that was concerning him like this? I think we can get a little window into the mind of John, into the heart of John, if we go back just a few pages to chapter 3 of Matthew. Let's go back, retrace our steps a little bit, go down memory lane, and go back to chapter 3. This was however many months ago, um, maybe a year ago, I don't know. And when we were in this text, Matthew chapter 3, this is the preaching ministry of John prior to the baptism of Jesus. And notice the emphasis that John has in his preaching. See if you can pick this up from verse number 7 to verse number 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So he He's frustrated by the hypocritical religious leaders coming to be baptized in repentance as a preparation for the kingdom. Who warned you to do this? 
Verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, prove that you actually care about repentance and then come to be baptized. And do not presume, verse 9 says, to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So it's not about your bloodline. It's about your faith in the coming Messiah. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. Not a term we use a lot. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What is the emphasis of the preaching ministry of the heartbeat of the prophet John the Baptist? It is that the kingdom is coming. That salvation will be brought to the nation of Israel. They ought to repent and prepare for the coming Messiah. Because when the Messiah arrives, what is going to happen? Judgment. Wrath. God will set things in order. The winnowing fork is a picture of a farm where he's throwing. He's at a threshing floor. He's throwing the wheat and the chaff, which is the garbage that's on the wheat. He's throwing it into the air and he's allowing the wind to divide what is heavy and what is not. The chaff is blown away and will be burned in unquenchable fire. That is Gehenna. That is hell. John was consumed with what the Old Testament presented to him as the picture of the kingdom. When the kingdom arrived, salvation will come and there will be judgment upon the wicked. That was his focus. That was his thought process. John had preached imminent wrath from the Messiah. But here he is in prison and he's only hearing of the blessings that Jesus was bringing. And he's only hearing a veiled teaching regarding the coming future kingdom, the future judgment. And this caused John to wonder whether or not Jesus was the real thing. Consider the implications of this, which are so natural to us if we really step back and put ourselves in John's sandals. Here we are in prison. We have proclaimed the coming of the Messiah. We are confident the Messiah has arrived. We have rejoiced in that. We have been emboldened by that. We've even preached to Herod about his sin and the impending judgment upon his sin. We've been thrown into prison. But the Messiah is here. Yeah, I'm going to prison, but it's going to be okay because the Messiah is here. In other words, the Messiah is here to set things in order. It's all right, I'm going to prison, but the Messiah is going to take vengeance for the righteous. He's going to pour out his wrath upon the wicked. So this will be set in order in no time at all because the kingdom has come. And what does he hear? He hears about Jesus healing and casting out demons and teaching and communicating with the people and feeding thousands of people. And what is he not hearing? He's not hearing about Jesus setting things in order. John's circumstances and his limited knowledge of the messianic ministry caused him to experience second thoughts about the validity of Jesus. Now, let me just pause here at the end of verse number three and ask you, does this resonate with you? It does with me. My circumstances in life 
and my limited or my personalized view of what the Messiah should be to me often cause me to doubt whether or not Jesus is actually who he claims to be. John is in prison. He is suffering. John has a limited perspective of the messianic ministry. And therefore, he doubts and he sends a delegation to say, are you really the Christ? Have your circumstances and limited knowledge of the work and ministry of Jesus caused you to wonder whether he really is all that he's cracked up to be? John's view from his hole in the dungeon and John's view from his limited perspective and his personalized view of what Jesus should be doing, his expectations of what Jesus ought to be doing right now, and the frustration of that not taking place, his situation not being changed, caused John, based upon what he heard about the deeds of the Christ, the Messiah, caused him to doubt. That's the prophet's problem, and it's one that we can resonate with, I believe, but it flows right into and immediately we find the Messiah's message. So if we see the prophet's problem and we say, here's John and he's doubting whether Jesus is in fact the Messiah, instantly we come face to face with the answer from Jesus. He doesn't blow off the delegation. He doesn't set him aside and say, I'll get to you in a minute. He immediately answers them in verse number four. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. Go back to John in prison and tell him this. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel, the good news, preached to them. Jesus' response was, go tell John this. Now, at face value, it's pretty simple. We think, well, it's quite obvious that what Jesus is doing is he's saying, hey, if I can do these things, you can trust that I'm the Messiah. And in fact, that is exactly what he's doing. But there's more to the story than just saying, I can do these miraculous works. Therefore, you ought to be confident I am the Messiah. Jesus is drawing John back into the Old Testament, into what John's perspective would have been developed by, which is probably the prophecy of Isaiah. In fact, if we go back into our Old Testament, flip with me to Isaiah, we'll find these passages are almost direct quotes from Isaiah. Go back with me to Isaiah chapter 35. And we find here, talking about the nation of Israel being restored out of their imprisonment and bondage, we find this description. Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Now notice what verse 5 says. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. And, and shall the lame, lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. In other words, there is coming a time when the Messiah's ministry will restore the nation of Israel. God will bring vengeance. God will bring judgment. And the result will be 
these miraculous deeds. Jesus says, go back and tell John that verse number 5 of Isaiah 35 is happening. Therefore, he can be confident that verse number 4 will happen. You understand, what, you understand what Jesus is doing here? He is drawing John's attention back to the Old Testament prophecy. He is placing himself in the prophecy. I am verse number 5. I'm doing that. You can be confident that verse number 4 will be fulfilled. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 61. We find the same context that Jesus is using. Verse number 1. This is a messianic part of the prophecy. The spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And so, in other words, Jesus says, this is taking place. I am proclaiming the good news to the poor. Verse number two, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort those who mourn. What Jesus is doing in his response to John the Baptist's delegation to him, they come They say to him, are you in fact the Christ? He says, go back and tell John that Isaiah 35 verse 5 is happening. Therefore, 4 will happen. Go tell him Isaiah 61, 1 is happening. He can be confident verse 2 will happen. In other words, there's only one Messiah. And Jesus says, it's me. It's me. Go encourage the heart of John with this prophetic statement. So when we come to this list that Jesus gives us, no doubt Jesus' purpose was to bolster the confidence of John with his miraculous power. But these were the very things John was hearing. Jesus reminds him that these are fulfillment of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Therefore, the vengeance and wrath of God will also be fulfilled. Take heart, John. Life is hard for you right now. But I am the Messiah. And what you have proclaimed and what you have believed will come to pass. You can trust me. I'm the only one. Judgment may be delayed, but it is not ignored. In fact, David read for us from Second Peter chapter 3 this morning. And, and in Second Peter chapter 3, it is quite obvious that scoffers will say, God promised that he was going to do certain things, but he still hasn't done them. So why in the world do you believe in this God? Right? That's what 2 Peter 3 says will happen. And and in fact, that is what has happened for centuries. And yet, verse number 9 of 2 Peter 3 says that God is not slow concerning his promises, as some men count slowness, but he is patient. In other words, the purposes of God are being fulfilled in the delayed wrath of God being poured out on the earth. He has a divine plan in his timing, and it is not an undermining of his faithfulness to his word. John the Baptist was discouraged in his circumstance, and he was discouraged with his expectation of what the Messiah would do instantly. And the result was his doubting the very validity of Jesus' claim to the Messianic throne. Now, verse number 6 concludes Jesus' response to John with just a rogue beatitude, right? Uh, Just so that we don't forget, 
we're back into the Beatitudes here in verse number 6. Jesus throws out one of these statements. It is a clear declaration of truth. There, is, there are blessed people and there are those who will never be blessed. Those are the categories of people. Chapter 5, verses 3 through 10, clearly communicated those character qualities and distinctives of the kingdom people. And here Jesus returns to that same proverbial way of talking he says in verse number six blessed is the one who is not offended by me this is a beatitude that was personally spoken to john and it is personally spoken to those who would doubt the messianic ministry of jesus you say well what does he mean by this verse he simply means if we can draw back on our understanding of chapter five and his beatitudes and the list that he gave on the sermon on the mount He simply means that those who are not offended by him are the only ones who will experience the true and total blessing from the gracious hand of God. Now, I think the ESV does us a little bit of an injustice here with its translation of the second part of this verse. And the blessed and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You may have a translation that says blessed is the one who does not stumble over me. The word here is where is the word we derive. We we derive our word scandal from this word. The idea is a stumbling block. In fact, you remember back in chapter five when Jesus was talking about the kingdom. He said, if your right hand offends you. That is, if your right hand causes you to stumble or causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better that you go into the kingdom with one hand than to go into hell with both hands and spend an eternity in judgment. This is the same word causing you to stumble. And Jesus says, if I don't cause you to stumble, you will be blessed. In other words, to John the Baptist, if my life, my instruction, my ministry is not a hang up to you, it is not what causes you to drift away, then you will receive the blessings of heaven. Jesus has been and always will be the point of offense. Even for those who should know the glory of the Messiah, should recognize the messianic claim of Jesus, Jesus still becomes a potential stumbling block. The ones who by faith believe that Jesus is the Messiah based upon his works and words and not their own expectations of what he should be will be saved from their sin and enjoy the fruits of his kingdom. Now, John obeyed this. And this, the short story is Matthew doesn't record anything else, but John obeyed this. John received this word from the Lord and he applied it to his life. He would renewed in his confidence because of the messianic prophecies that were being fulfilled. And he was blessed because he did not become offended or stumble over the work and ministry of Jesus. How do we know that in chapter 14, where we read earlier after John is beheaded, John's disciples come to one person first. You know who they go to? They go to Jesus. They want Jesus to know that his cousin, who was also his prophetic forerunner, has died. John continued to worship and will enjoy the fruits of the kingdom with us for eternity. Now, what are the implications of the Messiah's message? We've seen the prophet's problem, and the message of the Messiah has Drastic implications as well. The testimony of Jesus works, proves that he is alone, the Messiah and Savior 
for sinners. He's the one that was promised in the Old Testament. He is the one that came to fulfill those declarations from Isaiah and from the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. That has a dramatic implication on us. Jesus is the only Messiah. He is the only Savior. He is the only Lord. Put whatever title you want to place there for him that comes from your New Testament understanding of Jesus, and he is the only one. What does that mean for us? Well, if Jesus is the only Messiah, if Jesus is the only Savior, if Jesus is the only promised one, then the question is asked of us, and we must ask ourselves before the Spirit's piercing eyes. Am I looking for any other Savior? Am I looking for any other Messiah? Am I looking for any other Lord? Do I serve any other? Am I like John? sitting in a prison of my circumstance and thinking to myself with my limited expectation, this is what Jesus should be doing right now and he's not. And therefore, I'm losing confidence. I'm losing my confidence that he is who he claimed to be. Have your circumstances caused you to doubt the power and the preeminence of Jesus Christ? Have your personal expectations of the kingdom of Christ left you waiting for him to get with your program? Do you find yourself impatient with the Lord? Do you find yourself secretly wondering what in the world he's doing up there? Because I'm down here in the nasty now and now. He's up there in the sweet by and by. And I'm praying and he's not getting with the program. Do we have an expectation that is derived from our own sinful heart? Or do we have an expectation of his messianic ministry that is derived from his revelation of himself through the preserved word for us? Have you begun to look for other saviors to accomplish what only Christ, the Messiah, can accomplish? Let me phrase that differently. Have you and I begun to look for blessedness somewhere else besides in our faith relationship with Jesus Christ. If we have, then we really cannot say Jesus is the only Messiah. Because if he is the only Messiah, and in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, clearly communicates that he is the only Messiah. There is nobody else. There's no one to look for. John, just sit tight and hold tight. You're going to be fine. I am the Messiah. If that's true today, and we would say, I confess that Jesus is the only Messiah, then why are we looking for blessedness anywhere else? Why are we looking for possessions and worldly success to be, to be that place of blessedness? Why are we looking for money to meet that Need for blessed fulfillment. Why are we looking for satisfaction in a marital relationship? Why are we looking for it in a parenting relationship? Why are we looking for it anywhere but in Christ? He is the only Messiah. John can have hope. He can have contentment. He can have joy. He can enjoy the blessing of the kingdom because Jesus is the only Messiah. No other Savior can satisfy. 
Satan's greatest temptation to us is that sin will satisfy you. Right? That is the lie. That's the lie no matter what sin you're facing. The lie is that if I do what I am not to do, or if I don't do what I am told to do, I will be satisfied. I will be happy, and I will enjoy blessing. That's the lie. That's the lie when you're faced with a sinful temptation. And the the reality of the matter is, is that that sin will satisfy. It will bring joy. It will bring blessing. For a moment. But the end of that sin, the consequence of that sin, of the rejection of what God has clearly communicated, a rejection of his character and his law, the end of that will be nothing like joy and blessing. It will be punishment and wrath. Sin's choice is always presented to us as an alternative to what God has clearly communicated. And what we find in verses 1 through 6 in chapter 11 is in the face of the rising opposition, even the questioning of the prophet himself. Jesus says, I am the only Messiah. I'm the only place where satisfaction takes place. The relationship with me is the only one that matters. It is my kingdom that is preeminent. We have to ask ourselves each and every moment of the day. Am I going to believe the word of God? Or am I going to believe the word of the tempter? That is the battle with sin. That is our ongoing struggle. And I believe that these verses speak to that issue. John was being tempted to sin. To turn his back away. To throw in the towel on the kingdom of Jesus of Nazareth. He was encouraged with this simple truth. Jesus is the only Messiah. Now you may be here this morning and you say, I don't even have a relationship to Jesus. I wouldn't even claim to have one. Or you may be here and you might say to yourself, I do claim to have a relationship to Jesus. But it it doesn't include giving up me. It doesn't include me turning away from me. I mean, my agenda is still at the top of the list. He's not really he's not really Lord. Maybe he will be. I mean, the big stuff he is, but I'm not I'm not I'm not totally catching this. Are you saying that Jesus desires to be the only preeminent one in my life, the the highest one in my life, even above my own agenda? What about my self-worth? What about my own dreams and desires? Jesus is the only Messiah. He's the only savior. And because he is the only savior, only those who come to him desperate for his grace, his forgiveness, his substitution on a cross, dying for their sin. Only those ones will receive the blessing and satisfaction of Jesus. Only those who admit their desperate condition, that they are spiritually bankrupt. Only those who see that their sinfulness has created a divide between them and God that that cannot be bridged. They cannot work their way out of this situation. Only those ones who then turn and place their confidence and faith in Jesus Christ and who give their life to Jesus Christ. Only the ones who lose their life will find it. Only those who walk away from their own agenda, their own righteous deeds, their own effort, and trust entirely upon the righteous deeds and the effort of Jesus 
the God-man, will understand and experience the blessing of the kingdom. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the good news that was being taught and preached to the poor. Those who were at the end of themselves. They were being told there is one who can stand in for you and you can know the blessings of the kingdom. And his name is Jesus. And he is the Christ. He's the Messiah. If you're here this morning and you don't know him, you have never bowed your knee and your heart before him and surrendered to him. You've never waved the white flag of your own agenda. Ask God this morning to give you eyes to see. Ask him to give you ears to hear the truth. Ask him to give you a heart that can believe, that can understand, that can grasp the the centrality and the exclusivity of Jesus as the only Messiah. The substitute for sinners. Jesus is and always will be the only Messiah. He's the only Messiah for you today. He's the only Messiah for me today. And he is worthy of our confidence. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our hope. He is the only, the only Messiah. Gracious Father, we thank you for these simple verses and this simple account that press upon us such a profound truth such a basic understanding for us that press upon us what Matthew has been pressing from the very beginning so that we might respond rightly to that Messiah, the one and only, your only begotten Son, Jesus of Nazareth. Do your work through this text. May we never doubt Him. May we never substitute something else in His place. May we who are Yours through Him, exalt entirely in Him, obey Him, follow Him, love Him, pursue His glory so that He is everything in us. And may those who are not Yours through Him, who may make a profession to follow Him, but have no fruit of such a life. For those who would not profess and who have never believed, break their hearts of stone. We ask that you would give them hearts of flesh, that you would give life where there is death, that you would give sight where there is blindness, that you would give hearing where there is no hearing, so that they might respond in faith, that they might respond in repentance, in turning from their sin, to place their confidence entirely upon your Son, the only Messiah. We desire these things not so that we would receive glory, but so that through these earthen vessels, through these clay pots, these broken, nasty, sinful vessels that hold the treasure of Jesus Christ and the good news of Jesus Christ, that in these vessels you would receive honor and glory, for it will be obvious that the power is yours and not ours. This is what we desire. This is what we ask for, and we ask for it with great anticipation because your spirit is present to do this work. Your promises give us hope that you are doing this work, and we desire to see it continue and grow and develop to maturity 
in our own lives. We pray for these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.